Rose Library presents Behind the Archives. I'm your host, Lolita Rowe. The community outreach archivist at Emory University Library, Stuart A. Rose Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library in Atlanta, Georgia. In this first season of Behind the Archives, we explore from many perspectives the question, what is an archive? Journey with me to learn from the insights of our guests and explore what we do at Rose Library. In this episode, I talk with Randy Gu, Assistant Director and Curator of Political, Cultural, and Social Movements Collections. Randy, why don't you introduce who you are? Hey, Lolita, how are you? My name is Randy Gue, and I'm the curator of political, cultural, and social movement collections at the Rose Library, and I'm also assistant director of collection development at the Rose Library. But I have to tell you that this is a weird experience for me. As you know, I'm almost always the one asking the questions, not answering the questions. So oh, this is, the tables have turned. Yeah. So <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Yeah. Oh, it'll be great. It'll be fine. It'll just, you know, it's just an informal conversation between two colleagues at the Rose Library who both love drag shows. Um <laughs> A keepsake from our last drag show at the Rose Library. Yes, I believe every time a bell rings, a drag queen gets her wings. I don't know. I thought I heard that somewhere. Um, I could be wrong about that. If not, I think it should be a thing. (laughs) So thank you for joining us today. Um, It's been a great week here at the Rose. But let's talk about what do you do here? You have a very long title. You have a lot of job responsibilities, but what is it that you do here at the Rose? Let me start here. Um, The Rose Library has four main collecting areas, English language, poetry, and literature, African-American history and culture, Emory University archives, and everything else. So my collecting area is everything that is not Emory University archives, English language, poetry, and literature, or African-American history and culture. So that runs the whole gamut from punk rock to the social, um, political, and cultural history of Atlanta, Georgia, and the South, activism, the Civil War and nuclear threat reduction. That's all. And, and everything else is covered by uh, political, cultural, and social movements collections. So would it be fair to say that your collecting area is the kitchen sink? Yes. It, it is officially the kitchen sink. That's how, that's how we describe it. Yes, that, that seems to be an archival term I've, I thought I've heard somewhere as well. Well, you have all of these... Um, different topics, different subjects, collections that you maintain? Like, what does a curator, like, so you have all of this, how do you acquire these items? How do you manage these items? What is your role to to handle these things? So I I have three main duties. Um, So the first one is to acquire materials in my collecting area. So that includes things that are manuscripts, and manuscripts are personal papers, Um, the records of businesses and organizations, which are organizational records, rare books, and um, digital archives. So my job, first, the first part of my job is to acquire those materials to add to our teaching and research collections for 
folks to use. And, uh, you know, in non-pandemic times, I want to make sure that I mention that the Rose Library is free and open to everyone. Um, and hopefully we'll be in non-pandemic times sometime soon. Um, so that's that's kind of my first duty is to acquire materials, to build to build on the collections we already have and to fill in gaps with areas um, where we're looking to expand um, and document different lives and voices and communities. Um, the next duty is to promote those collections. And that can be everything from a blog post to doing an exhibition, um, speaking to the Kiwanis Club, you know, and, and, and having a drag show at the library um, and anything within that kind of range. Anything that makes the collections more visible to the Emory community, to um, the Atlanta community, and also to the larger academic world. Um, and then my third duty is to raise money. I'm charged with raising money for my collecting area, for raising money for the Rose Library, for Emory Libraries, and for Emory University. That, in a nutshell, is my job. And you mentioned um, that you can do your job in several different ways. And one of those things is a new podcast that you have out as well. I do. The podcast team was kind enough to include me in their podcast listing. So um, I'm an urban historian by training. And so Atlanta is my specialty. And um, I have a podcast called Atlanta Intersections. And one of the great debates in urban studies is how do you understand something as large and complex and ever-changing as a city, as a place like Atlanta, which is 28-county metro region with 7 million residents. And Sam Bass Warner, uh, America's leading urban historian, published a book in the 80s looking at the lives of 13 Bostonians. And he used kind of these lives to um, say things and figure out things about the city. And so I kind of took that as an inspiration for Atlanta Intersections. With Atlanta Intersections, uh, I invite interesting folks in and we talk about their lives. We talk about their experiences in Atlanta and we talk about how those things are intertwined and how they intersect. And so tell me, um, you said that your background is Atlanta. So how did you get into this career? What was your path to become the curator of the kitchen sink? How much time do you have? <laughs> well, we, we can go in an hour. Yeah, that'd be fun. Because <laughs> it, it, was, it was a long and winding road. I actually went to Emory as an undergraduate, um, and I was lucky enough that Emory kept offering me free degrees after that. Um, and as part of those free degrees, I did tons and tons and tons of research um, in archives. I absolutely fell in love with the research process. I loved the kind of like detective story. You have, you have little bits and pieces of information that you're trying to fit together. You and I both know in the reading room at the Rose Library every year, we have a few people who give us that Yes, moment where they find that thing that they knew, that, that little piece to their puzzle that they knew that was out there, but that they hadn't quite found yet. And so I just love that process and spend a ton of time in the libraries. And then um, 
because I was working on one of my degrees. Unfortunately, I had to get a job, right? I had to make oh, some money. Jobs, yeah. <laughs> so I got a job working in the mailroom in the library and um, with our colleague Moffitt. And it was at the time when Senator Sam Nunn was transferring his collection from Washington, D.C. to the Rose Library. Um, and you have to understand that Senator Nunn's collection is thousands and thousands of boxes. So when the UPS truck pulled up at our loading dock, guess who they got to move thousands and thousands of boxes from the mail room to the storage floor in the Rose Library? So you're in the mail room and you get this big amount of mail. These boxes, thousands. The I, you thousands. don't you don't understand? Not hundreds, thousands <laughs> of boxes. What do you do? And does that is that the moment when you're like, boy, I really would like to work in archives one day. <laughs> that, it actually it is because I got to see behind the scenes. Like to take the boxes to the storage area, I had to go up the service elevator, take them to the floor, and the storage floor. Didn't look didn't look like it does today, right? It's all nicely lit. We have beautiful compact shelving and all that. This was kind of a dark thing with these like cam with these tilted steel um, shelves. And um, Naomi Nelson, who is the um, now the head of the Rubenstein Library at Duke University, she was the political curator at the time, and she was incredibly patient with me because I got up there and I was like, "What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that?" And she and she answered all my questions um, very patiently, maybe because I was moving thousands of boxes for her. <laughs> but um, but it was like kind of at the at the you know this is a long story, but at the end of that point, I was like. Someday I'm going to work up there. And um, and I also, I don't think I've ever told Naomi this, but I was like, someday I'm going to have her job. <laughs> I didn't know that um, archives were basically like Highlander where there can only be one and you just move one person out to get the job. It does seem like that sometimes, like, you know, because jobs are scarce. Like the roles that you play and in in that because we don't have a political curator anymore. Right. We don't have that. But as you were like working your way up after the mailroom, where did you go next? Like, how did you decide, like, how do I get to this position? You know what? That's that's another amazing story. I was um, working on my Ph.D., was sitting in my apartment one afternoon at about 4.15 or so. I remember how the sun was coming in through the windows because my windows faced west, and my phone rang. I picked it up, and it was like, hello, this is Randall Burkett. I work in special collections at Emory Libraries. I hear your the civil rights movement is one of your um, areas of expertise. Do you want to work on an exhibition? And I just sat there pause. It was one of those great moral moments in my life when I was like, do I tell him that I don't know anything about exhibitions <laughs> or do I say yes and figure it out later? What do I do? So I paused for a bit and I was like, yes, I would love to. <laughs> so, yeah. so Randall Burkett, our former colleague, is the one who hired me for my first job in the Rose Library. And that was about three years after I had moved all of Senator Nunn's boxes. And that's the process. And I always say to people that 
archives seem to recruit from within. Like once someone gets hooked, it seems like they then are like, oh, well, would you like to do this thing? Yes. It's always yes. And that thing leads to such great opportunities, right? So you're like working with Randall and you're becoming this curator of these different collections. So you can answer this question, right? Why are archives important? Well, first off, it's because they're a whole lot of fun, first and foremost. Um, I mean, as I mentioned before, even before I got in the archival world, I was addicted to archives and kind of that archival experience. But um, they're really important because it allows you to see and hear, if you will, other people, other people's lives, other people's stories, the stories of organizations and how those people um, intersect. Um, one of the things that's really important to me in my collection development is showing communities of people, right? Because um, organizations are made up of individuals. So what I try and do is I try and get the papers of individuals and then I try and get the records of the organizations so that you can see how these things are intertwined um, and how they're in dialogue with each other. And most importantly, to show how one person can make a difference uh, in life. That's why I try and show agency, because I feel like so many of us feel so powerless in our in our lives or kind of so stuck and um, getting people's papers like the Jesse Peel papers. It's like, you want to know how one person makes a difference in this life? Go look at Dr. Jesse Peel's papers. That's that's one way to figure it out. So archives are really important. Um, so also, so you get an unmediated experience about people's lives, people's stories, people's communities, and people's histories. It's one of the few things where you can... Um, this is a cliche, but touch the past, be in touch with the past and be in touch with other people in their lives and their communities. And you've mentioned um, Senator Nunn's papers and you've mentioned uh, Dr. Peel's papers. Are there other papers uh, that you have or that you wish you had that kind of still inspire you? Yes, I want it all, Lolita. World, domi- <laughs> world domination. I want I it all. Yes. Yes, we sit on a on a throne of archives, and we want people to experience it. That's the good thing. We are generous kings. <laughs> the thing that has made the pandemic so difficult uh, for this job is I'm used to spending hours and hours and hours and hours with people, going through their papers, hearing their stories, learning about um, – how their lives are reflected in these collections. And because of the pandemic, um, I haven't been able to do that. So um, there are always collections out there that fit with our holdings. And so um, can I tell you the great secret about collection development? You can't, you, you can't tell anyone. I won't. Uh, I promise. <laughs> um, this is a word of mouth business. Um Like we usually will bring the first collection in a particular area in, but the magical and amazing thing happens is that, is that, um, that community then builds the collection. Um, like for, as exam, as an example is the Atlanta punk collection. My friends and I donated our stuff 
um, to get the collection started. But ever since that happened, it's been the it's been the Atlanta punk community who's built the collection. We have the stuff from the beginning, from the hardcore movement in Atlanta in the early 80s. But if you look at the finding aid now, the collection goes up until last year or two years ago or something. And that's through other people hearing about the collection and saying, hey, I think I have something you'd be interested in. That's how we build most of our collections is people getting in touch with us saying, um, like Billy Howard did. He called, cold called me one afternoon, was like, I think I might have something you'd be interested in. And I was like, oh, brother, do you ever? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because the thing, too, is that people don't understand that they belong in the collections, like they belong in the archive. They think that you have to be of something. I don't know what they think that you have to be, but it tells a story. And um, one of the coolest things was, is when you see yourself in the archive and there was a, um, a, a person who came in with his girlfriend and they saw themselves or he saw his um, image and one of the photographs in the punk rock collections. And it was just looking at his smile that was like, oh my gosh, I'm here, right? Like I'm in these collections. And it matters, right? Because your narrative is important and that's so powerful. Yeah, and that's that's why um, it's important to collect all kinds of materials, right? We Our collections need to reflect the diversity of experiences and communities that surround us now um so that's why you know people are like why why do you collect punk rock why did you have a drag show why do you collect um do-it-yourself collections because i want to document what is a living breathing evolving culture in front of us right now and preserve it for the future for people to understand where it came from you know, you mentioned earlier, people don't necessarily uh, feel like they belong in the archive. Can I share another secret with you? Absolutely. <laughs> the first thing everyone, I mean, everyone says to me is, I don't have anything you'd be interested in. I'm, talk I'm talking about someone who's, who, who, is, who, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist known for his extensive notes. I was like, you know what? We, we'd probably be interested in your papers. You know what he said? I don't have anything you'd be interested in. It's, it's, so it's, it's, it, it, that, that feeling and that sentiment is way more prevalent than you would ever imagine. People see um, archives as not, not pertaining to them. And that's something that I am fighting mightily against because I'm with you. It's important to see you for you to see you, to see your family, to see your community reflected in the archives. Absolutely. I, I, I agree because there's so many people that come in and we hate this word discover, but there are so many things that are in the archive. But when you are connected to it, when you see something and you realize that you are not alone or that you realize that the thought you have is supported, I think it's very powerful and, and impactful. I mean, when you think about like the promotions that you've done, I think it's also something that not only it doesn't just like throw open the doors but it also puts the sign up that says welcome, right? Or we put the welcome mat down. And then that means that, like you're saying, like word of mouth, oh, if they can have this event, this show, the, this topic, 
then maybe it's something that I'm interested in, right? Oh, you're absolutely right. You know, I used to coordinate our instruction program. And in every class that I taught, uh, I would ask the students, what do we have here? And that would be the first question I'd ask. There'd be dead silence. And then eventually somebody would slowly, tentatively raise their hand. And then they would answer and they would say, old stuff. <laughs> and, yeah. and I get it. That's, that's, what people, uh, that's what people think. We have old stuff. And we do have old stuff. But what is the, the, what is the implication of old stuff? The implication of old stuff is that it has no relationship to me, to my life, or to my times. And that's, um, that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to erase. It's, yes, we have old stuff. We do. Um, but we also have stuff that has a direct impact on your life. And so that's kind, that's kind of the thing. When you said putting down the welcome mat, that's, that's kind of the thing. Um, Trying to expand, like I, as I tell as I tell Jennifer all the time, it's like I'm trying to expand on what people think libraries should do because what people think libraries should do is a very narrow road. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it's the narrowness of the sh like it's more than the shushing. It's more than with archives, um, with the archives you're putting people uh, into rooms and you're like barreling down on them and saying, you can only look, but you don't touch. We will have this magical entity of air to brush over the things and you must wear gloves. And we all know that that's a misconception of it. Like, especially working in archives, uh, realizing that, well, first of all, I never set foot in an archive until I began working in an academic library. And for four years, I worked as a, when I was a student, I worked in a library, didn't realize that there was an archive downstairs. And then coming back as an, as an adult in the archive world and realizing that there were so many things that I wish I could have touched or, or would have helped me to understand things more. So we talk about this and what are some other misconceptions that people have about your job or about archives? All right. Can, can I, can I offer two? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, the first one is that curators are only interested in what they think is cool. That's not true. Right. Um, we like my academic training is I'm trained to see things in an interdisciplinary way. And so that helps me see um, across my collecting area broadly. I actually have a plan. This is systematic. Um, and so some of the stuff I get, uh, no doubt, I will not fight you. It is cool as could be, but I didn't get it because it's cool. I'm always thinking about a graduate student in 40 years. If they want to know, what was Atlanta in 2018 like? I want to have the materials to help them try and answer that question. So that's kind of the first misconception. Uh, the second one is what I call the antiques roadshow problem, right? Um, pe pe people call me every day and say, hey, I've got this. How much is it worth? And I was like, I can't help you with that. You, you need an appraiser, not a curator. But I appraise them for their historical value, not for their financial value. And I appraise them for how they fit in 
our teaching and research collections and where I see the collecting area moving. Um, unfortunately, I can't do uh, dollars and cents. I wish I could. It would make it much easier. But yeah. uh, those are those are those are two of the misconceptions. I'm so glad that you brought up the appraiser, you know, because people do ask a lot of times, like, can you, you know, we can't put we can't put monetary value on an item, but here are some people who can, you know, and sometimes we can give a great list or we can say, well, here's the society that you can go to to look at. Um, so I'm <laughs> thinking about those misconceptions and and how we're like trying to educate people like what are you know, what is an archive? Like, what do we do? Um, are there things that you would like people to know that we do that that maybe people don't that you think people may uh, think is like beyond the scope of what archives do? Yeah, you can come in here and look at stuff um, just because you think it's cool, right? Um, I think that folks assume they have to have some kind of academic project or larger goal, but um, we all entered this profession because we love being around the stuff. Um, yeah. That's that's why every single one of us works in this profession, and I want. I want people, just general people, to have that same experience, that same feeling of just seeing it and being like, wow, that's cool. That's kind of the thing that I wish people would come in. It's like, hey, I want to come in on Saturday and I want to see Dr. Peel's journals or I want to see punk rock flyers from 1982 or I want to see Mr. Woodruff's mail, you know, just – and you don't have to have you don't have to be writing a paper. You don't have to be taking a class. You can just come in and take a look at it. That's that's why we have this stuff. And and that's what kind of makes um for us COVID so frustrating right now. You know, we're restricted during our, our pandemic times to Emory University and we're still narrowed in, in who we can accept number numbers wise, but it is so great in in pre-COVID times to have people come up and just like just like have things there and having the tactile experience, I think is so important. I still get a kick out of holding the sword and not because I am a Highlander fan, which I am. Um, Adrian Paul, if you're listening, you rock. But if you have like the, the sword and the sword tells like so much history in it, right? Like the, the thing that's written on it is I believe Latin. It's created for a Confederate soldier, which we know that it couldn't have been created in, in America during the time because if you went up north to create a sword that's treason and then who gave it to us was not the confederate soldier but um an enslaved person who freed himself and fought in the civil war came back and then he has his own tale to tell because he becomes the uh one of the people who formed the NAACP and that's just from one sword and that's just one item like you have your collections we have the um American music show Right. Which, you know, we talk about that because that's not like papers. That's another thing people think about papers or letters, because as we're moving into 
modern society, uh, things are, are created. Like we're creating our, our histories and our, our lives in different ways. But that's a capsule of life in Atlanta during a time frame that I don't think many people know or like, you know, there's an idea, but to be able to see that. And that's been really great. And then um, Dr. Peel, which I know we'll be talking to him in one of our other podcasts, Community Conversations. Uh, but uh, what we discovered, like, you know, with Dr. Peel and his help, his assistance with the AIDS crisis, another pandemic that swept through the country. And, and how did we deal with that versus how do we how we're dealing with the pandemic that we're currently going through? It all tells a story and it tells a factual story that I think is so, um, like you said, when you have people in the reading room or in these programs and then they connect to it, it it's so enlightening. It's why I do community outreach. It's it's why we collect what we do. Yeah. I, and I had a, an experience like that. Um, probably, well, let me look. Oh, it doesn't have the date on it. Probably eight years ago or so, we did our first exhibition using the Rose Library LGBTQ materials. And um, a couple came up and they looked and they're like, hmm, posters, photographs, books. We have this stuff. Would you be interested in this stuff? So it's like, as you said, it's being there and seeing those materials and realizing that you have those things and that your lives are reflected in the archives. Um, that's, that's, that's the meaningful stuff, right? That's, that's what we, tr like you said, with outreach, that's what, we're, that's what we're trying to do is for people to make that connection. It's like, hey, that's cool stuff. Wait, I have that kind of stuff. I'm in the archive. So I would do you want to add my stuff to the archive? That's kind of the the chain that we're trying to um, the chain of association, if you will, that we're trying to create. And so I have I have two questions and that connect one of them connects to it with this. Um, what advice would you have for someone who wants to donate? to the archive. That's the first one. And the second one would be, what advice do you have for aspiring archivists, curators, people who want to work in the field? Well, uh, donors I'll tackle first. So if you, <laughs> let, let me tell you first, you have something some archive may be interested in. Um, each archive, including the Rose Library, has different specialties and all that. Um, but I always tell people, um, if your materials, if the Rose Library isn't the right place for your materials, we will help you find a home that is right for your materials. So, but reach out and contact us. That's what people do. E email the collection development team, call the collection development team, email me, call me, um, and we can talk about it. Uh, what you have, um, what it means to you, what your story is, and how it might fit into uh, what what we're doing. That's that's the easiest the easiest place to start. Unfortunately, I can't come visit you and sit down and see the stuff right now because of the pandemic. But hopefully, sometime soon. Now, in terms of advice to uh, folks who want to get into the profession, um. My advice would be to do everything when you get in the door at the archive. Um, I spent many years 
working in research services at the Rose Library. I was the first graduate student to ever work 20 hours a week on the reference desk. Um, I worked for many years in collection services. Um, so I feel like that really helped me by the time I got to be a curator, having that broad experience of what goes on in an art in the different parts of an archive. Um, I think that was really helpful and it's helped me um, when I've, since I've become a curator. Uh, so that's, that's my biggest advice is do anything you can and follow your curiosity. Um, Cause who knows you may end up curator some, someday. <laughs> I, I, I believe you should be a, a dabbler in all things because I think it's very important to know what your colleagues are going through and, and so that you can talk their language. Um, so like, you know, when you're in collection services, you know, processing, which we talked to Sarah quickly. Uh, we talked to accessioning and our next conversations will be about how we present this to the public and how the public uses it. So it's like curation helps in that aspect too, because as a curator, you're like, you're saying your, your goal, right? Cause it's not a job, but your goal is to have materials that people can be inspired by that um, documents the history that we have in, in different various communities. And I, I know in the past when people have collected things, it's been a, a kind of one note, but I believe at the Rose and at many archives across the country and the world, we're trying to have everyone's voice because I think, you know, one note doesn't tell you the whole song, right? So I, I just want to, um, you know, connect that musical note because of punk rock. And I want to say, is there, uh, you know, this is why we do what we do. And is there anything you would like to tell our audience? Wow, that's a big, broad question. Um, <laughs> one thing is, in non-pandemic times, the Rose Library is here for you. We acquire, arrange, and describe preserve these materials to make them publicly available. That's the whole reason why we have them is to make them available. So y'all, y'all come on down here. We'll show you, we'll show you some cool stuff. Uh, Randy Gue, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today. We really appreciate it. Lolita, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun being on the other side. So thank you. Behind the Archives is produced by Lolita Rowe and Nick Twimlow. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library. Jennifer King, Director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, Dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to Randy Gue for this wonderful interview. Please join us next month when I'll be interviewing Courtney Chartier about her work as Rose Library's Head of Research Services. For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, Community Conversations, and Atlanta Intersections, please visit us online at rose.library.emory.edu and follow us on Rose Library's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find Behind the Archives and our other podcasts on all your favorite podcast feeds.